We return now to the wisdom of Dr. R.P. Kaushik, first heard here in the Levity Zone back at our very beginnings in early 2013. I feel it is time to take a break from yours truly, Dr. Bruce, and sink back into the profound insights from the good Dr. Kaushik. His insights never cease to transport and to transform me. I call this episode The Long Minding Road to Freedom, as he so clearly demonstrates that the products of the mind, the me and the ego, have wound us through interminable traditions that always devolve. New revolutionaries arise to lead us out of these traditions, only to spawn new traditions that also deteriorate. To break this cycle, to free us from structures of thought, Dr. Kaushik examines the very nature and action of the mind, showing us that this most beautiful and delicate instrument can become our guru if we will only follow it. By holding ourselves apart and observing the mind without choice or judgment through all of its meandering ways, we will track it all the way to its end and open out into a new space, the flow of universal energy that some call freedom or enlightenment. I hope this intro helps you to follow Dr. Kaushik's line of reasoning, a road well worth traveling all the way. Well, there's always a lot of debate and argument going on in the world. Some are traditionalists and some are revolutionaries who want to break up every tradition. And unless you understand what really this tradition is and what this revolution is, you are just going to side with one group or the other without understanding the implication of what you are doing. So, as I was giving an example from the Hindu scriptures, the search for truth, this inquiry into the unknown, how from the pre-Vedic period to the Vedas and then to the Upanishads, this whole search came in the form of a true inquiry. How the teacher would really try to awaken the intelligence of the disciple. There is no division between the teacher and the disciple, guru and the disciple, they are not higher or lower. They are just co-farers on the same path of inquiry, of self-discovery. So there are no ready-made answers. The disciple comes with a question and the teacher just gives him a little direction. No answer, just a direction to move. And the disciple moves in the direction and he finds that there is no answer in the direction. And then he comes back after six months and the guru gives him again another direction. He moves another direction. Till the disciple comes to a point where there is no scope for movement, when there are no more choices. And when that point is reached, where there are no choices, there is an awakening of intelligence. Intelligence is only destroyed when you have so many choices. You think you could do many things. We are all so clever. We all think that we can do so many things. But if you really look at life, if you really look at any challenge in life, and if you see the totality of that movement, you will find that in any given situation there is only one choice, not many choices. If you are moving 
in a conditioned way, the conditioned mind has always one choice, and the choice is according to its conditioning. But the conditioned mind is always in a state of confusion because it thinks that it could do something other than what it is conditioned to do. So a conditioned mind, when it is totally conditioned, has an illusion of freedom. And therefore, it will think and think, think and think of hundred possibilities. But in, when it comes to doing, it does only one thing, what it is programmed to do, what it is conditioned to do. A man of understanding, when he sees totally every aspect of the challenge, he comes to a point when he sees that there are innumerable choices available to him and he could really act upon them if he wants. He is not hampered by programming. So he sees many possibilities. But since there is no preferences and no wanting, he is constrained to act only in one direction which covers the total movement. So having all the possibilities, he is still acting only on one possibility, only on one course of action. So up to the Upanishadic period, there is a flame of inquiry, there is an intensity of inquiry. Life is not so well organized, people are not busy amassing wealth or other means of enjoyment. They are still living in an environment where human beings are exposed to nature. But as civilization progresses and people get busy in the world of matter, divorced from nature, they have very little time for inquiry. Then they find out an authority, a guru who knows everything, and then they rely on that guru who knows everything. So all the problem at that time, in the Puranic period, in the period of Puranas, the only problem is to find out somebody whom you can trust. Once you can find out somebody whom you can trust, you don't have to inquire anything further. You just ask him what to do and he tells you, and you can do it. Life becomes so simple. Inquiry is a hard word. Following is so easy. So then authority is built. Guru acquires an authority. Priests acquire an authority. And then ritual becomes important. Inquiry is replaced by ritual. So that's the period when tantric philosophy or tantric yoga came to its height of development, learning about reality through symbols, through images, and through those images and symbols, trying to expand your consciousness. So symbols become important, guru becomes important, and then whole of tantra is a discipline of ritual. And these rituals give tremendous power, but no understanding. And because of no understanding, Tantra declines and degenerates into witchcraft and black magic. Few who acquire this understanding, they can't communicate it further because the disciples have, don't have the capacity to inquire, to discover. They, they can just repeat. And repetition destroys intelligence, destroys energy. So Tantra degenerates. And then last of all, when this ritual and Tantra also degenerates, this was still the scientific aspect. Last of all comes the time of devotion or bhakti. In the 15th and 16th century, India passed through an era of devotion. Hundreds and hundreds of devotees, hundreds and hundreds of saints were born in that period. Kabir, Guru Nanak, Raidas, Meera, many, many. It is called a period of devotion. Psyche is still simple. 
it still has faith in some guru, someone. It can trust implicitly. And now, when that era is gone, then people really do not know what to do. Intellect has developed so much. And once intellect develops so much, it is questioning which form of yoga is the best. Bhakti yoga, or jnana yoga, or karma yoga. Which yoga is the best? And who is going to decide? The intellect is incapable of deciding. So you could see this whole development of spiritual thought in India. You could see this whole spiritual thought is undergoing modification with the passage of time. And if this whole thought is moving, is not fixed or stable, where is the tradition? What is the tradition? Which will you call the Hindu tradition? The Vedic thought or the Upanishadic thought or the Tantric thought or the devotional thought, which current you are going to call the Hindu tradition. Where is the tradition? And the latest tradition, the latest Hindu tradition is to copy the West and grow rich. Very few people in India today are interested either in Bhakti Yoga or Jnana Yoga or Karma Yoga. They are only interested in money yoga. How to make more money? If you look to the West also, you can find the same thing. Whole of this mythology or religious history, if you like to call it, of the Old Testament is common to the Jews, is common to the Christians, is common to the Muslims. They have the same heritage. In other words, Jewish heritage is the ancient heritage. The tradition is Jewish. But at one point, Christ comes on the scene. And what is Christ teaching? Christ teaches no rituals, no dogma. They don't lead you anywhere. One man goes to the temple and he is praying there and he says, My Lord, I observe all the commandments and I know all the rules of good conduct. I observe all the observances. Please listen to my prayer. And a moment later, another man walks into the same temple and he says, My Lord, I don't know what commandments are. I don't know what Bible is. I don't know how to pray because nobody has told me. And because I don't know anything, please accept it. And Jesus says, the prayer of the second man is granted. The prayer of the first man is not granted. So all your righteousness, all your observances of commandments and virtues don't carry you far unless you have simplicity of heart. That's the only teaching. And no ritual can bring about the simplicity of heart. At that time, problem for Jesus was that the whole of the Jewish priesthood had become so much involved in ritual, so much involved in dogma, that it had only become a center of exploitation. There was no life in it, and that was his revolt. His revolt against the tradition. Jesus did not want to set up a new religion. He declared that he has come for the Jewish race. But what he saw, he saw it not carrying anybody further. And so he tries to bring about a change. To the Jewish priests, Sabbath is very important. And Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for Sabbath. You are trying to make everything as if man was to be sacrificed on the altar of scriptures, on the altar of orthodoxy. You want to sacrifice humanity. So he simplifies the whole thing. And he says, very simple thing. What's the kingdom? What's the way to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, be like little children. That's all. That's the only way. 
But nowhere is mentioned how to be like little children, small innocent children, how to be small innocent children. Nowhere is mentioned. Because nobody can mention it. There is no way. You have to find out this. And the only way is to find out your cleverness, your crookedness. If you discover what you are doing, change takes place. But there is no way to make people simple and innocent. Every technique, every system is going to make them more complex, more complicated. That's the whole tradition, that's the whole history. Nowhere in the Bible is mentioned where Jesus might have told his disciples, repeat this mantra or repeat this formula, and this will happen. If you want to walk on water, come along. If you have faith, you can walk on water. Just have, if you have simplicity of heart, it can happen. But if you have conflict inside, if you have fear inside, if you have doubt inside, then you are going to get drowned. So Jesus is only stating certain facts which he sees. But there is no way to change those facts. But how does the fact change? The fact changes if you look at it. So Jesus tries to bring about an outward revolution in the Jewish tradition. So a Christian tradition is born. You see, out of this freedom a Christian tradition is born. And the Christian tradition sets up the church and sets up all the ritual and dogma and preaches only Jewish religion in the churches in the name of Christ. There is no religion, only the organized form is transferred. The ritual becomes important. The authority of the priest becomes important. And contact between man and God is lost. The simplicity is no longer in evidence. In the same way, when the Muslim religion started in the Middle East, Prophet Muhammad also sees the same problem with the Jewish tradition at that time. It has become a sterile dogma, only rituals and no substance in it. So he wants to bring a reform also. He sets up another tradition. But all these reforms, all these so-called revolutions, only become reforms. And every reform degenerates into the same form which you are trying to reform. So every reform which tries to, or every revolution which wants to deny the tradition, fight with the tradition, creates another tradition, which needs another reform or another prophet, another savior. Another revolution is needed. So, as we really do not know what the Hindu tradition is, we do not know what Christian tradition is. If tradition is anything, whether in the Hindu religion, in the East, or in the West, what's the tradition? The whole tradition, the only core of the tradition was one simple truth, find out, discover, and live according to your perception. Live a life of integrity. Don't live in conflict. Sin no more, and you will be whole. So on this core of truth, when you want to organize this core of truth, the truth gets buried deep down into the earth, and all that you have is a big monument, which you might call a temple or a church, or a mosque or anything. So you are left only with the stones and the buildings. The spirit gets buried deep down in the earth. And then you will need another Messiah, another Savior, to come and dig up this earth, demolish these churches, discover this truth, and nobody likes these Messiahs and Saviors. You can worship a Jesus after 2000 years, it's very easy. But when he was there, there was terrible opposition to his very existence. People crucified him. And I'm sure if you ever find some new Messiah or new Jesus again, people will definitely lynch him. It will be no different. Or if they don't lynch him at least, 
will shut him up in a lunatic asylum. People don't want to hear truth. If they wanted to hear truth, the truth was there. Truth has not been lost. Truth is there in this life, in this world. And there's a very interesting story which Krishnamurti has described when he was thinking of dissolving this order of the star. He wanted to disband this organization. He narrated a story. A story is very beautiful. And he says that devil was walking with his friend. And a man was walking in front of them. And this man picked up something from the ground. And devil's friend asked him, what is it that this man has found? He has found truth. The devil's friend said, my dear friend, if man finds out truth, your days are numbered. How will you rule the world? Devil said, don't worry, my friend. He has found the truth, but he is going to organize it. (laughs) And therefore I am safe. (coughs) So long as man will try to keep on organizing truth, devil is always safe. So you can build the body. You can build churches. You can build buildings. You can build anything. What you cannot build is the spirit. Truth you cannot build. Human mind cannot create other than what it is. Mind is material. It can create matter. It can create churches. It can create mosques, temples, organizations, idols, images, scriptures. It can create everything. But what the human mind cannot create is the spirit of which it is a part. The part cannot create the whole. The whole has to be formed from moment to moment. And that can be only brought about, that can be only found when the part learns to surrender, not hold on to truth. Because it can't hold, it cannot organize. So anybody who claims to have found truth, and he starts dispensing it to people all around, for a fee or without a fee, is deceiving himself and deceiving others. So, we can see very clearly a few facts. First fact is, truth cannot be organized. Perception cannot be organized. All the attempts that have been made, they fail. Second thing is, any outer revolution is going to degenerate. Whether that revolution is political or spiritual, any outward revolution is bound to degenerate. So, if you are a revolutionary, You don't try to hit the tradition outside. There is no tradition outside. Where is the tradition? How is it that so many saviors came, so many prophets came, so many mystics came? In the east, of course, there are not so many. In the the west, there are not so many. But in the east, thousands and thousands of saviors and prophets and enlightened beings, Buddha and Mahavira and Kabir and Guru Nanak and Tenergus, most of them. And before them, so many rishis and so many seers. And in spite of all these prophets and seers and enlightened beings, the tradition is still to make money. Whether in the East or the West, the only tradition is to make money and do good business. And if possible, whenever media of business you find are not so lucrative, not so paying, then make business through spirituality. Spiritual business. So, is the tradition in the scriptures? Is it in the Vedas or the Upanishads? Is it in the Bible? Where is the tradition? It's a very important question. Where is the tradition? Is it somewhere outside? The tradition is inside. It's inside. Tradition is the human brain. The structure of human brain is tradition. And fight with that. Fight with your own brain. 
and see what happens. And why there is tradition? Why human brain is the tradition? Because all that has happened, the whole of history, of the individual as well as the collective, the whole of the human history is imprinted in the brain cells as memory. Each one of us carry that in our genes, that whole history. There is nothing wrong with that history. We must know that. But there is one thought which arises from the brain. And that thought says, all these things, all this memory that I have collected, all that it exists, how is it going to survive unless I preserve it? So I must store it and preserve it. I must document it. I must put it in the form of books, in the form of churches. Worship it somewhere or it will get lost. So this thought, and why it wants to preserve all this? Not because it's history, but thought wants to continue through this memory, through identification. If I am a Hindu or if I am an Indian, and the whole such a big beautiful spiritual tradition is there of the East, of the Hindus. If I identify myself with the tradition, I am something. People will come to listen to me in large numbers. But if I am not identified with the tradition, then there might be a few handfuls, 10, 20, 50 people, not thousands. So why do we want to identify ourselves with this whole of this memory, with the whole of this past history? Why do we identify ourselves with that? Because without that history, without that heritage, I am nothing. And each one of us, therefore, creates a myth. The Jewish people think that they are the chosen people. And in India, the Brahmins think that they are the chosen people. And of course, Christians know that there has never been a greater savior than Jesus, such an embodiment of love. So the Christians are the only people who are going to be saved. So each, each thought current gives a certain primal importance to itself, ascribes a certain speciality to itself, that every dogma, every creed becomes special. Dogma or creed is not special, human mind makes it special. Because only when human mind makes it special, it can follow it. I want to follow something which is special. I don't want to be an ordinary person. And why I want to be special? Because I am ordinary. If I am special, I don't have to follow anything special. I don't have to add something else to myself to become special if I am special. Because I am nothing. Within myself, I am lonely, empty, bored individual. And therefore I must find out significance to my life. And therefore I attach myself to something which is significant, which has meaning, which has importance. So the human thought collects all these memories and gathers around a center, which is the me. And this thought has a special characteristic. It has its own cultivated choices, likes and dislikes. According to that conditioning, according to that background, you select out what is good in the Christian tradition. And you say, look, I am a Christian. This is Christianity. According to your conditioning, if you like the Hindu background, then you choose something of the Upanishad and you say, look, I love the Hindu tradition. And if you are much more rational than the Hindus and the Christians, you say, no, I want to be spiritual, but I want to be rational also. 
then you pick up something from that storehouse of memory, that bank of memory. The Buddhist tradition, because Buddhist thought is the most rational. You say, look, Buddha is the only savior, and that's the only path, the only way to freedom and salvation. So thought, according to its conditioning, chooses and picks certain portions from this total human history, from the total human psyche, and creates a small center to continue and to survive. And in that attempted survival, it creates mischief and disorder. A certain tradition in the brain cells is necessary. If you didn't have the tradition, the human society will degenerate. Through thousands of years of history, human beings discovered that brothers and sisters should not come together and procreate. They discovered it. That's ingrained here. That tradition must be there because otherwise, if this tradition is not followed, human society will degenerate. It's a scientific fact, not a psychological fact. So there are many facts which are necessary for survival. The child, however small it is, is afraid of darkness. Nobody has told him. But it gets frightened in the dark. Because you can't find your bearing. You've discovered through evolution that you need light to look and to be aware. There are some animals who enjoy dark. Cats maybe I think doesn't get frightened of dark. Bad doesn't get frightened of dark. The human mind has caught this fear of darkness. So many parts of those evolutionary movements which are ingrained in the brain cells are necessary for survival. So there is a certain tradition on purely biological or technological level is essential. <coughs> and that is the function of the brain. And brain is always thinking. The moment a challenge comes, the brain starts thinking. Why it thinks? To point out that there is a challenge. Meet it. Only when you meet this challenge, survival is possible. If you don't meet it, there will be disorder. So, there is a need and necessity for the survival, for certain memories to be preserved intact. And the brain cells do require this security. But what security? Security of food, clothing and shelter. You do need space. You do need to survive. Otherwise the brain cells will degenerate. So that security for the brain cells is necessary. That security for the body is necessary. But the security through identification with something higher than yourself, whether it's a god or a goddess, whether a temple or a mosque or a book, is denying the possibility of survival. It's destructive. So many wars have been fought because of this identification. So many revolutions and battles have been fought because of this identification. Because man has always been trying to identify himself with something greater than himself. And that identification, that brings about chaos, conflict and violence. So if you see that for fact, tradition comes to an end. And when tradition comes to an end, you start looking and observing. And seeing for yourself what is true. Not following anyone. And so long as you are following someone, you can't look. The authority will never let you. Whether the authority is from outside or the authority is inside. If you have identified yourself with some book, some thought current, some group, some church, some temple, some organization, that will blur your vision. You can't look beyond a certain distance. 
you become short-sighted. You can't look at the whole of life, which is too big and vast. So, if a revolution has to take place, it has to take place within the human psyche, within the human brain, not outside. If tradition has to be smashed, it's not to be smashed outside somewhere. It has to be smashed inside. Not through violence, not through technique, just by simple awareness that this whole process of identification is destructive for survival for no other reason. We are not interested whether we find truth or not, we find God or not. Simple survival is denied, is made impossible through this process of identification. And that means a very big change. Thought functions on technological level. Memory functions on technological level. But on psychological level, thought functions in. If thought is functioning on psychological level and is creating the division between me and you, I and my, you and yours, tradition cannot be ended. The whole tradition which is facing this challenge is the challenge of mine and yours, the division between I and you. Because all of this tradition is a process of identification, division into groups and nationalities, sex, and a constant battle and a warfare. And if thought comes to an end on the psychological level, fantasies disappear. In your own personal life, romanticism disappears. In your own personal life. In projection of images, come to an end outside, in the collective. The collective disappears. And then you live a life of sanity. A sane life. Rational life. And then you think for yourself. And then act for yourself. Out of your perception. And when you think for yourself and act out of your perception, then you create a world, then you create a society, which is free. Not free according to the Marxist or according to the counterculturist. Not that freedom. In this country, the word freedom is very much abused. This whole notion of freedom has brought to a certain permissiveness. And that permissiveness has not solved the problem. It has only brought about a devitalization of energy. It has only brought about a mediocrity and superficiality. It has not solved any problem. That is not freedom. Freedom is not your capacity to do what you like. That is anarchy. That is disorder. And freedom is to see the implication of what is. Freedom is what you are doing and why you are doing. And in so doing, are you really free or are you a slave of your unconscious urges? And because you are a slave of your unconscious urges and passions, and because you don't see them, you are blind to them, you think that blindness is freedom. That leads to chaos. So freedom is a state of total responsibility to whatever you are doing, to whatever you are thinking. Whenever there is a total responsibility, Whatever you think and whatever you speak and whatever you do, there is maturity. And only with that maturity can you solve the problems of human existence. If you don't have that maturity, do whatever you will. Whether you read scripture, or you chant, or you sing, or you recite mantras, or do hatha yoga, or do any political action, do any social action, do any cultural action, do whatever you will will only create disorder. And I don't know if you have really looked at this human brain and if you have looked at this human body. It's such a sensitive instrument, such a perfect instrument which nature has given us. There is a little foreign protein coming from outside and there is sneezing. Little foreign protein, little pollen coming out, there is sneezing. 
body wants to throw everything foreign, everything which is alien to it. It wants to function in total harmony, introduce the proteins of anybody else, and immediately the body rejects it. Think one violent thought, think one destructive thought, and see what is the response of the whole body. The whole body goes into a state of convulsion, into a state of tremor. Think something destructive and see your pulse rate, see your respiratory rate. And if you do not see the whole of life, if you want to see only a part of it, a fragment of it, and want to suppress the other part which you don't like, the brain is recording everything that's going on, just like the tape recorder. But once you have cultivated a resistance to life, then you only hear certain parts, you don't hear the whole. You look at only certain parts, you don't look at the whole. And with that partial observation and partial listening, you have disturbing dreams at night. And the mind resolves the conflict which you have created in daytime. And does not rest, does not come to a point of rest, unless that conflict is resolved. So the mind doesn't want any foreign thing, any conflict is foreign to the human mind. It's not something inherent in the human mind, it's foreign to the human mind. Human mind wants to function in total harmony. Any conflict, it wants to throw, resolve it completely. If not in waking state, in sleep. Can you see how extraordinarily sensitive this instrument is? You are dulling it with your drugs, with your coffee, with your smoking, with your cigarettes, alcohol. With your endless pursuit of pleasure, you are dulling it. Wrong food, you are dulling it. But however you may try to dull it, the body has still it. Remarkable capacity that you have. You can't keep on abusing your body for 20 years or 30 years. It breaks down only after 20, 30 years of abuse. The heart attack doesn't come after wrong food of 10 days or 15 days or 2 years. After 20 years of wrong food, heart heartbreak. You can keep on smoking endlessly. It takes 10, 20 years to produce that cancer or emphysema or something which will ultimately kill you. So much of resistance is there in the whole body. So much of reserve power is there in the whole body. But you're inflicting injuries after injuries, abuse after abuse, and it's still surviving. And your brain cells are resisting every effort and conflict, trying to resolve it, and you keep on pushing and pushing more and more conflict. But then it takes time to completely break down. It tries level best to resolve all those conflicts through dreams. And you could see it in every day-to-day -day life, how perfectly balanced this instrument is. If you take a hundred dollar loan from me, and you don't return it according to promise, you know what happens? What happens if you take a hundred dollar uh, loan from me, and you don't return according to promise? You say, you will return it after a month, and you don't return it for one year. What happens? The mind keeps plaguing me with that problem. And how you resolve it? Or you are totally dishonest. There's another way also. The mind has evolved a new way. The intellect has evolved another way. And the other way is if you become totally dishonest, then also you resolve it because you become totally done. I would have given him his hundred dollars, but he sent me ten reminders. He doesn't trust me. And if he doesn't trust me, I'm going to prove that, all right, if you don't trust me, I am, I am unreliable. Logic comes in. So you use logic to square up the account. So if you don't pay me in hundred dollars cash, you pay me by giving me a bad name. You pay me anyway. 
due to balance it. Unless you use logic and find out some some lacuna, some flaw in the person whom you are not paying. You cannot afford not to pay. And that is the that's the misery of this world. That's the real sorrowful state of this world. If you are doing good to people, people will turn against you. They do good or they are the most frustrated people. So that's another matter whether you can really do good to anybody. Because either somebody has to respond with the same level of action, and if one cannot, one must find out some reason, some logic to denounce you. So this is what thought is doing. This is a function of thought. To balance up, to square up accounts. And this is distortion of logic. So if you do not want to come to a total balance through sanity, mind comes to a balance through total insanity. It must come to a balance somewhere. If you cannot come to a balance through total honesty, you have come to a balance through total dishonesty. But mind wants a balance. So can you see such a beautiful instrument with such capacities and potentiality? And how we are using it? So nobody is preaching you morality. Nobody, nobody is preaching you spirituality or religion. Life demands it. Your brain demands it. Your mind demands it. Your body demands it. So if you start looking at your body and mind, and to look is to meditate. If you start looking at your thought current, if you start looking at the movements of the mind, all your emotions, all your feelings, as they arise from moment to moment, your thoughts and feelings, if you are really looking and not trying to distort them, those thoughts and feelings will tell you the way to freedom. So your thought is the guru. If you could follow and listen to it and see where it is taking you and why it is taking you. If I understood you correctly, you said that the mind is selective. It, um, it sees and hears what it wants to hear. And if I'm watching the mind, won't it reveal itself to me only selectively? Mind is not selective. Thought is selective. The me is selective. Mind is recording everything. And so if you start listening to it without resistance, without judgment and criticism, it will reveal to you the whole content. Mind is trying hard to unburden itself, even in dreams. So if you start watching the mind without resistance, without justification, without choices of likes and dislikes, mind will unburden itself completely. And then unburdened mind is silent mind. Thanks go out to Bo Millward for masterful editing on this episode, which came off tapes recorded over 35 years ago. Music by Mystical Sun and cover art by Jacob Amon. Thanks also go out to Tom Manning for providing these digitized recordings, and to Dr. Kaushik's son, Manav Kaushik, for giving his blessing for their release. Find all of the teachings of Dr. R.P. Kaushik in our Internet Archive collection at www.archive.org and find the rest of the Levity Zone at www.levityzone.org.